this addition on our house. And, you know, I, tell, I love telling stories about this process because it, it took so long and it, it, it kind of just shook our entire family up because we all had to live in one room while the other part of the house was being done. This was in our old house. And um, we hired a great contractor. Uh, he did everything on time, on budget. It was just fantastic. And he loved our kids. And so he, him and his partner would... He, he and his partner would um, uh, work, and if one of them made a mistake, they'd do this thing where instead of saying, you know, you're an idiot, they just go, hee-haw, right, okay? Could, and you can connect the animal dots there. Um, and, so, uh, uh, and so my son, you know, at the time, he's five, six years old, all, all day, you know, I come home, and all day long, he's going around going, hee-haw, hee-haw. I mean, they just, it was just, it was just a, a, a fun time and just a time of total, utter chaos in our lives. Well, that contractor hired uh, a subcontractor that was a Finnish carpenter, not from Finland, but would finish <laughs> the carpentry work. And, uh, and so he came to our house on a Saturday. It was kind of a side job for him. And he got there about 8 o'clock in the morning, and he began to do the molding uh, in our bed, in this new bedroom. And so he started at 8, and about, I don't, I don't know, I, 12, he had done one door and was starting on the closet. So the contractor came to see what the, how the progress was going, um, come to find out he had different expectations for the progress. So they get into a discussion, and I slowly backed out of the room because it was making me uncomfortable. But the contractor was ripping this guy because he's saying you don't need to keep fussing with this the walls are square they're plumb just measure it cut it put it up there and so he dismissed the guy lovingly and and he began to just take his miter saw which last service told me what it was because i didn't know what it was uh his miter saw and he threw up the molding in record time, I guess. For me, it was record time. I'd still be there doing it. And so he, he, he does all this work because he knew he had framed the house and he knew it was square. He knew the walls were plumb. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to go through the book of Amos. And it's kind of an obscure book in the, in the Bible. And we're going to cover the whole book in one day, right? Today. So at three in the afternoon, we'll be done. No, it's, it's, a, it's pr- a pretty easy book because it's six chapters of God just going off on, on Israel. Here, let me give you the setting. It's in 760 B.C. and uh, 750 is when it was written. So about that time, Amos was a sheep herder and a dresser of, fi- of sycamore figs, okay? A nobody. And he was in the southern, Israel was a divided kingdom. We've talked about this before. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel was become, becoming very prosperous. They were trading. They were doing lots of things. They were becoming very prosperous. And like in any other society that begins to be prosperous, they're starting to get a little lazy, a little arrogant. They're, they're having some military um, success. So they're starting to think of themselves as like, hey, you know what? We're not too bad. And so... Amos comes from Judah, which is poor, and, and goes up to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, in order to kind of say, hey, this is what's going on. God is not happy. Now imagine you're a mechanic or a, I don't know, whatever, and 
the worst part of Santa Ana or some area around here that's just not a great neighborhood, and God comes to you and says, I would like you to go to South Coast Plaza and begin to tell them that you don't like the plastic surgery or the way they're spending their money. Now, how do you think that's going to be received at South Coast Plaza? Not, not very well. Well, you can imagine Amos, the sheep herder, going to the king and saying, you know what God said? God said he's done. And so we have six chapters of this until we get to chapter 7. And that's where we're going to start out. And, and, and God has given Amos these two uh, visions. And so what I have for us this morning is, is this, this idea that in our lives, God, we are building lives. We've been talking about this before, under construction and all that kind of stuff. And that God wants us to build a certain way. And your, your thing for your, your outline on the top is, uh, if the walls aren't plumb, ultimately it's going to cost you. If the walls aren't plumb, ultimately it's going to cost you. And you say, now what does that have to do with anything? Well, as we move through this morning, we'll begin to kind of put some flesh on that. If the walls aren't plumb, ultimately it's, it's going to cost you. So let me read kind of the vision that God gives Amos. He gives him two visions. We see some really trippy verses in there, and then we'll get to the the meat of it. This isn't up on the wall here, but it says this. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. This is Amos writing. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested just after the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, this is in his vision, I cried out, sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. And here's the weird part of the verse. So the Lord relented. The Lord said, oh, that's a good point, Amos. Isn't that weird that the sovereign God of the universe would show Amos a vision, and then Amos goes, oh, that's that's just too much. And God says, oh, okay. So he gives him another vision. How about this one, Amos? Okay, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land, and I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented again. That's so bizarre. He gives him two visions, and those aren't good enough for Amos. Amos, I I don't like it, and God says, well, okay. Now, if you just stop there, you'd go, Amos can control God. (laughs) Amos, ask for something. Get some money. Get a, you know, whatever. Get a bigger sheep. Herd. I don't know. I, that just came out. Okay, right? So, and, and then he says, that, the Lord, that will not happen either, the, Lord, the sovereign Lord said. Now, watch what happens. This is so awesome. And this is what's up on the wall there. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? See, Whenever you're reading your Bible and you get to a part where God's talking to somebody, pay really close attention because it gives you insight into this God that we serve. See, God shows him a vision of locusts and shows him a vision of fire. And he's like, no, no, I don't don't like this. And he says, okay, let me show you this. And now he begins to bring Amos in on maybe what is going on behind the scenes with those visions. And he says, what do you see, Amos? God doesn't have to ask Amos this question. God could just say, hey, Amos, see you in heaven. And then Amos is up there, and he's like, now stop bugging me. I'm going to wipe him out with fire. But he begins to talk to Amos. He says, tell me what you see. And, and Amos says, a plumb line, I replied. 
And the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. We don't hear Amos saying, no, Lord, don't do that. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning. There's something about God's righteousness that kind of puts everything into perspective. Let me show you what God was doing uh, when he showed Amos this vision. This is a plumb bob, not plumb bob square pants. Um, You can tell how old my kids are. Um, This is a plumb, and this is a plumb line. Now, if I were stronger and my arm wasn't shaking because I can't hold it up that long, um, this would be perfectly vertical because there's a principle at play here that we refer to as gravity. (laughs) And gravity pulls that metal thing down and it shows you exactly what vertical is. And I can look. Our door frames are in pretty good shape. That's good. I can tell that. So what you'd do is you'd, hi- you'd hang this on the header of your door frame or whatever, and then you'd measure the distance between here and the door frame and there and the door frame, and you'd know whether or not your door frame was in the right way. And, and for those of you who are in construction, and I'm, if I use the terms all wrong, don't send me an email. I don't know what I'm talking about, okay? I just, this is, this is I've just given you everything I know about construction right now, okay? So, so, um, so that's in place. And so you have to have this standard to know how, how it's going. If you don't have this, you're going to start building and you won't have a way to measure to know, am I going in the right direction or not? This represents God's righteousness. God is perfectly vertical in his righteousness. See, God's perfect in everything. He's perfect in his wisdom is perfect. His knowledge is perfect. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He knows everything about everything. He created, we were were singing that, the moon and the stars declare who you are. We said, he has told every lightning bolt where it should go. He's created the stars and he knows them by name. See, this is God in his righteousness. And what he's doing is he's standing by a wall for Amos. He's basically standing there with a plumb line going, hey, Amos, this is straight. You can see it yourself, right? He goes, now I'm going to set this plumb line. Into my people Israel. And Amos looks and he's like, oh, I see where it's going now. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about three points that we can see through the book of Amos that hopefully we can see, a, a, according to our own lives, um, a, a, a parallel of applying God's righteousness to our lives. Because, see, God is the righteous judge. And he stands with our lives. He looks at our lives. He holds it up and he says, how are you doing I'm going to set this plumb line amidst my people. And if it doesn't look right, I'm going to spare them no longer. Now, it's like that, I mean, what? I mean, we can't say that. Jesus came and there's grace and all this kind of stuff. We're going to to work all that out. It's going to make a lot of sense when we're done. The first thing I want us to see, uh, for us to see, is that God's principles are perfect and predictable. 
It's a tongue twister, but that's what they are. God's principles are perfect and predictable, and we can see it in creation. We see things like gravity. We see gravity is predictable. Every time I throw this book down, the Bible, it's going to land on the floor. There's not a time when I throw it and it flies the opposite direction. It's predictable. It's perfect. It's gravity. God thought it up. He created it. We see it as just like, well, yeah. But see, that's what a perfect God does. His principles are perfect. His righteousness is perfect. Everything he does is perfect and predictable. Not, we can't predict God, but we just know when these things are applied correctly, we are in God's will. The gravity is incredible. It's by gravity that we can figure out the tides and the moon and all, all that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, about a year ago, um, I think it was a year ago, we went on a grunion run. I don't know if you know what that is, but basically it's these little fish. And what they do is they pick, somehow they know when the highest day of the tide is, and so they all swim up, bury their eggs, and then go. And then as the tide recedes, after a while, it's going to come back up, and it hits the very last day of the highest tide, and the little fish swim back down. So we went, uh, and apparently we're not as smart as grunions because they didn't show up. So we couldn't figure it out. But here's the weird thing about the trip. It's not that the grunions didn't show up. It's that not one grunion showed up. Now, sometimes you'll get one or two, and it's kind of like the stupid grunions who are like, whoa, dude, that was tomorrow. Oh, man. And they're, you know, oh, this, this is terrible. You know, and the seagull comes down, and it's like stupid grunion, right? But, but the no, no grunion showed up. And I started thinking to myself, I was a little disappointed. Then I thought, that's amazing, They all know where to go and when to go. That's gravity. That's the tide. God created that. It's incredible. And so God shows up with his righteousness. Now look what the Bible says about God's righteousness. It's fascinating. In Psalm 119, 142, it says, Your righteousness is everlasting. In other words, the same God that puts the plumb line in Israel and says, I'm not going to take it anymore. This is ridiculous. I'm going to wipe them out. That's the same God we serve now. His righteousness is everlasting. Meaning he was righteous before the beginning of time. He's going to be righteous forever. His standard stays exactly the same. Exactly vertical. His principles are perfect and predictable. So your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. Well, the problem is every single one of us, when measured up to God's righteousness, falls short. We can't, in other words, when God puts this up like this, and he says, okay, everybody, line up, and you try to stand as straight as you possibly can, When God looks down this line and sees you, you are crooked. I am crooked. There's no way. And what's worse is because his righteousness endures forever, is from everlasting, and because he never changes, I can't be near him. He's perfect. Here's a great thing. Matter of fact, it says uh, in Romans, which is uh, behind me, there's none righteous, not one. And so what we do in the church is we start standing next to other people and going, well, as long as I can just beat out that person. It's like the two guys being chased by the bear. I don't know if you ever heard that story. It's a stupid joke. And the one guy is putting on tennis shoes, and he says, you can't outrun a bear. And he says, I only have to outrun you, you know. And then, because 
It's a disgusting story if you think about it. That's his friend, and he's going to get eaten by a bear. What a terrible way to go. Okay, so here's the thing. There's none righteous. And so you, I can stand next to you all day long and go, oh, look how crooked, look how terrible. And God goes, dude, you, you're not going to make it. So what happened was, what Shannon was talking about and what we've been praising God about is that God sent his son Jesus so that positionally God puts his standard up and Jesus, because he's perfect, just goes, get behind me. <laughs> right? And God goes, wow, who's behind you? Oh, that's John. Well, he's doing great. He's doing fantastic, right? I mean, it's not actually doctrinally correct that that isn't how it happens. But God paid that. Jesus paid that price. God wants to be in relationship with us. His righteousness is everlasting. It's perfect. It's true. It's vertical. And we can't make it. And so God supplies Jesus to die on the cross and to pay that price for us. You say, well, that should be the only point then. Let's all get out of here. God takes his plumb line and he throws it over here and throws it over there and Jesus is running and hopping around and going, oh, yeah, we're good. But see, that's the thing. There's another concept to relationship with God that is so exciting. And that's a big word that we say in church called sanctification. It's basically personal holiness. See, positionally, if you accept Christ and you say, I can't do it, God, I need you. When you do that, positionally, God says, you are righteous. But practically, you're still not. And God has set these principles from the foundation of the world of ways we should live that he's spelled out in his scripture that he knows if we deviate that, if the walls aren't plumb, ultimately, it's going to cost us. And he's very, very interested in how we live out our personal holiness. And that's what we're going to talk about here. Now, when we compare ourselves, this is what, what Paul says. He says this. Um, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. See, if I sit next to you and go, I'm better than them, God is saying that is not a wise way to live your life. Because I have another standard, not just positionally, but practically that you should be building your life with, this righteous standard. And if you build your house according to this standard, it is going to go better for you than if you don't. These principles are timeless. This righteousness of God is timeless. So he goes on, he says, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. God is interested in how you're building your life. Yes, I'm saved by Jesus, absolutely. But there's more to life than just praying a prayer and being done and going, oh, thank you. It's building that life with God. So our next two points are going to talk about um, that. The second thing is that God's principles are best applied early. See, what happens in a house where they don't use a plumb or they don't use a level or they don't use a square is that when you're looking at it, you just go, man, they're making lots of progress. This is fantastic. But when you start cutting drywall and you're going, what in the world? When you start hanging doors and they don't close right and you're going, this is, you start to try to put in a window and you're, 
kind of going like that. That's when it begins to show. And guess what? By that time, it's too late. And this is why I'm so um, serious about talking to young people about your sexuality at a young age. That you decide now how far is too far. That you decide before you date what your vision for dating and marriage is. It's not because I'm some prude guy who's just like, Ew, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, no, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> See? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is applying God's principles early is the best way. And I did it again. God's principles are best applied early. And so this is why when, when someone's talking about getting married, I, I try to express to them, listen, get somebody, find a spouse that is using God's standard of righteousness as well. Because what happens oftentimes is, is everybody's in love and it's huggy, kissy and all this and then, oh, he's so cute and all that kind of stuff. But when the building of the house comes, one spouse is going, yeah, I think, I think this is, I think God would have us do this. And the other one's just going, ah, it doesn't matter. You know, building up all this stuff. And, and the, house can't, the house can't stand. Because God's principles are perfect and predictable. And if you don't start it early, even when you're pouring the foundation, if you pour a bad foundation, you're going to mess everything up. This is why I try and tell kids at a young age, start tithing now. They're like, I make $2 for allowance. You want me to tithe 20 cents? Yep. Yep. Why? Because I know too many adults who've gone through in their entire life without a, this attitude of giving to God what is his, and it's really hard for them to write a $300 check at the end of the month going, are you kidding me? But the person who started that application early, 20 cents, became 50 cents, became a dollar, became 100, it just doesn't even, it doesn't, and, and their finances, there's peace in their finances. Why? Because God's principles are perfect and predictable. And if we start them early, we do better. Let me give you a, what, what, what uh, God says to Amos. He says, then look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In other words, it's too late now for Israel. They've built the house. It's horrible. Everything's crooked. Nothing works. They began to take these Canaanite rituals and, and kind of fuse it in with Judaism. And so they'd sacrifice a little bit to God. They'd sacrifice a little bit to Baal. They'd do a little, you know, little pagan dance while they're sacrificing to God. It just all became not right. Now, had the king of Israel, Jeroboam, when he first came into power and he, he decides, you know what, this is wrong. Let's get rid of these, this Baal thing and the Asherah pole and all that. Let's get rid of that. Now you could start to change things early. Let's say he came in and he said, you know what, we're, we're trading, we're starting to make this money, we've got, the, we've got our, our fellow brothers and sisters in the south, how can we get them involved in this? It would have gone fine for them. But because they let it go on and on and on, and because God kept warning them again and again and again, it's crooked, it's crooked, you, got, you can put up the drywall, but it's crooked, you know, and you can paint you know, with uh, Arctic white or whatever thing you get from Home Depot, but it's not going to make any difference because the house is crooked. And in our own lives, right now maybe you're beginning to, maybe you just had a kid or you're entering into a new relationship or a new job or whatever, and God's saying, apply my principles now. 
because it's going to be a lot harder later. If you base a business on distrust and you've been in business for a long time and now you decide to change, it's a lot more difficult than making that first decision of going, you know what? We're going to do it the right way. God's principles are, are, are best uh, applied early. I'm going to give you a, a, a scripture in James that kind of talks about this because it, it talks about the progression of not holding that plumb line up to God's standard. And it, it, it is in James chapter 1, and it's talking about desire. You just have a desire, ah, just a thought, just a, a thing, that kind of a passing thing. That's the time to squelch it. That's the time. The Bible calls it taking every thought captive. You just go, it's just a thought, bam, I'm, I'm going to take it. But watch what happens if we don't do that. Watch what happens if we build too long without God's right, standard of righteousness in our lives. And again, this has nothing to do with position. It's all about practicality. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And, and there have been times in my own life, there are times in your life, there are people you know where you've seen that one desire, that little thing begin to mature and grow, and they're building and building and building, and they put on addition after addition, and all of a sudden, it crashes down. It brings death. Because biblical principles, God's righteousness, are best applied early. This is why in our children's ministry, we want our kids to know as much of the scripture as they can. We want to get it ingrained in them that God is your provider, that God will take care of you, that God created you, that God loves you, God wants to have this relationship with you, God cares about how you live. We want to get this as early as possible because that kid has a better chance of building a life on godly principles, therefore a life that is going to be with less pain than one who waits too long. And we all know people who have waited too long, and in areas of my life, I've, I've waited too long as well. Number three, God's principles not applied have consequences. God's principles not applied have consequences. Let me show you what happens in Amos chapter 7, verse 9. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. See, if we wait too long and we don't apply God's principles in our lives, he doesn't just nudge the wall and go, oh, you know what, that'll, that'll be good enough for a while. He wants to rip it out. And I think about that because sometimes we get in our, a, a period of our lives that God is ripping out, that he's going, you know, we just got to do a bunch of demo work, and we, we see it as, as that's not very loving. But, but think about it. Isn't that the most loving thing to do? I mean, when I raise my kids, you know, positionally, I've given them grace. They can do a lot of stuff and still be my kids. They can do so, most things and still be my kids, right? Positionally, they're still my kids. And so positionally, we have a house of grace. I don't expect them to be perfect to be around me, okay? But, and they don't expect me to be perfect to be around them. Let's make that clear. And so, so positionally, they have a thing of grace. But practically, I know what little decisions, decision after decision after decision, is going to build for them. 
And so I discipline them and I remove things, at least and I remove things or we add things or we do a time out or whatever. And God does the same thing to us. He puts us in periods of time out. You are not going to be dating for a while until we can get this thing figured out. You are not going to fill in the blank. It's the loving thing to do. It would be so unloving for me to watch my kids make bad decision after bad decision and go, you know what? That's okay. They're still my kid. That doesn't sound, that's not right. And because God's righteousness is true forever, he looks at us and he goes, oh man, don't do that. It's not, we're gonna have to tear that out later. Just stop. Look at the plans again and let's go. Um, so it says the, the, um, it says the high places of Isaac will be destroyed. Now, now Jesus talks about the same thing. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, and uh, I don't have the whole story up on, on the um, wall there, but um, let me just give you kind of the whole idea. It says, therefore, this is started in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, in other words, you understand the righteousness part, you get it, you understand the standards. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, in other words, you build according to code, he's like a, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now we're changing word pictures from plum and square to foundation. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock on godly principles, on things that God had created as part of who he is and what he's created. Those principles, when applied, this is, that's what it does. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, so you may know God's righteous standard, but you just say, ah, you know what? It'll all work out in the end. He's like the one who loses his place when reading the Bible. Okay, here I am, wait. Yeah, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. See, God knows the difference between these two verses. He spent thousands of years looking down going, don't build that, don't build there, don't do that. I've seen it over and over and over again. You got the guy on the top, the rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew. Down the bottom, the rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew. Living a life of righteousness doesn't stop the wind or the rain. What it stops is this natural outcome. Godly principles not applied have consequences. So it says... It blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's amazing. When we hear God's word, and we apply it, and we begin to say, God, what, what area of my life needs to be ripped out? What, what does, I mean, we take the Bible, and we read it maybe in our quiet time in the morning, or, or, uh, um, or, you know, with our small group or whatever. I mean, with our small group, 
we just take the word of God and we put it up like that and then we all discuss, well, what about this and what about that? Does that match up with God's righteousness? Does that make it, am I wrong here? And everyone in the, in, the, in the small group holds us accountable and says, yeah, you know what, let's together move this part of your life out or let's frame this part together. It's like, I wanna start building this part of my life. Let's frame it together. That's, that's what small groups is all about. So let me ask you, let me ask myself, how are we doing building? How, what, what areas of our life have, it's been a long time since we've put up that plumb line because we know, uh, I think it's a little crooked. And God's going, crooked? <laughs> that thing's about ready to topple over. Yeah, well, look at my wife, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's like, I have been. You're more crooked. No, I'm just kidding. How's it going? What, what is the area? Well, as I've been talking and we've been looking in the scriptures, has the Holy Spirit been kind of giving you this area in your life and you're sitting there going, oh, I know. I know, I know. It's crooked. But I think I can cut the drywall in such a way that no one will notice. See, gravity always wins. And so if it's a little bit crooked over time, Gravity is going to pull that thing down because God's principles are, t- and this righteousness always wins. It's, it's, you're always going to prove God's righteousness right. Whether by living a life of righteousness that God is blessing and beginning to say yes and you're able to get through things or by not living a life of righteousness and just proving again, oh yeah, that's what happens. Now here's the great thing about the, if we stopped right there, we'd go, oh man, I don't want to mess up and I'm a little bit crooked here and over time it's going to kill me and you're depressing me. Here's the great thing about God. So when we were building our edition, um, there was these people uh, who were half human, half savage um, called building inspectors. And uh, if you're a building inspector, Get out. No, I was just kidding. I'm sorry for this, but it's been my experience, uh, and, and I know as I'm, I'm whatever racist would be for building inspectors. I'm stereotypical or whatever. But the problem with building inspectors is they come in, and they tell you what's wrong, and they are not even uniform in what they say. Like, sometimes you're like praying for one building inspector because he's real nice and he'll just kind of like go yeah it's good to see you no really yeah i'm gonna go to a ball game and he just starts signing off and you're like oh yeah and then you get that building inspector that comes in and right when he comes out of the door you can just see he's just like all mad and like because building inspectors have a lot of power and they can completely shut you down because their wife burned the toast and they just, they're just ticked. And so, or they just got chewed out. Now they're going to take, you know, the loose guy kind of got chewed out by his boss and said, I want you finding everything from here on out. So they, they show up at your door and, you know, they, you know, they got the thing and here they go and they start writing. Here is the wonderful thing about God. Because God's standards are higher than building inspectors. His code is perfect. He finds everything that's not to code every time. But unlike a building inspector, imagine you have this building inspector, and he goes, this wiring's all wrong. Let me go get my tools. And the building inspector runs to his truck and snaps his tool belt on. He's like, we can knock this out in a day. Come on, let's go. 
That would never happen. But that's exactly what God does. And it's awesome. The Bible calls it, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. In other words, God designed the plans of your life. He wrote, he drew up all the blueprints. He knows you better than you know you. He knows exactly what you're supposed to look like. He's shaped you in a way with spiritual gifts and with, with uh, talents and, and um, uh, your, some abilities and a personality and experiences. And he's, he's designed this whole thing. And then he looks at us, he looks at me, and he goes, oh, no, no. Those cabinets don't go there. That TV shouldn't be, that entertainment center should be much smaller, <laughs> right? And then he straps on his tool belt and says, come on, let's go. Let's rip this out. Let, let's, do it, let's do it exactly the way the plans were made. And that is exciting because his righteousness endures forever and his standards are the same. We could be done easily. But he says, I want to work it out. And then he's the finisher of our faith. He doesn't just take the blueprints, throw them out and go, well, good luck. I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> he says, hey, that's, you know, these little areas, these little things that we want to get. I, I have some accents. I got some ministry opportunities I want you to do that's really going to make this room look good. We're going to use a different kind of molding for you. Now, listen, as the worship band returns, we're going to go into a slower time of worship. And, and that's what this is all about, is this relationship with God, that he has this standard of righteousness that we can't make it to, and yet he keeps calling us to it because he knows the closer we can get, the, the more we will be living our life that we were designed to live. 